right. And microphone is on. Hello. Good day, everybody. Welcome and thank you for attending another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. I appreciate it. Uh, today is episode 68. For some overwhelmingly inappropriately childish reason, I feel like I should do something special next time. Can't even let me think of why. But thank you all for coming to this coming to the stream. Um, Jim says we made it. Ashley's making chicken noodle soup. TV's loud enough for hearing her here in the kitchen. I'll try not to yell then. Hopefully your noodle soup is delicious. Um, so yeah, we're back in merged worlds again today. Uh, last Thursday was our episode of Behind the Dice, which went really well. We were painting some minis digitally, which uh, was a lot of fun. Some characters and such. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of a recap from where we left off. And then uh, jump right into today's episode. I think I've got about two hours worth of content. I can never judge, so I guess we'll see. Um, sometimes it goes a little bit longer. Every time I... This is unrelated, but... Every time I turn around, I'm thinking, is it time to cut the beard off? And every time I think that, somebody leaves a comment in a video saying, love the beard, man. <laughs> and I'm like, well, can't disappoint the people. So yeah, we're going to uh, continue with our Merged Worlds story. You'll remember the current story arc is that our players have traveled far to the northwest, to an area they've never really gone before. Um to help out a kingdom that is being, I don't you call it, troubled, harassed, sometimes murdered by drow. Um, we all know Dandy has a specific hatred for drow and is searching for, searching for a specific one. Due to the story from the man in the hat, drow have once again stepped into the forefront of uh, potential enemies to deal with. This is an opportunity for them to potentially investigate that and uh, maybe even get some clues as to what may go on in the um, Last episode ended on a tiny bit of a cliffhanger. Um, I, I got some responses from people in the community uh, about being a horrible person for doing that, so that made me feel good about myself. I don't always try to leave it on cliffhangers, but once in a while I think it's fun to leave it right on the edge of something cool. But not to worry about that today. All right, so oops. Yeah. Gotta make sure I've got everything ready here. And yes. Hey, what's up, MT? Now, I was making some changes to the uh, streaming software and stuff today, so it's not showing a viewer count right now. So, wondering where that went. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still working on getting it back up, but I did redo the Wheel of Misfortune. For those of you who come to my streams often, know there's a wheel that I spin for certain situations. Um, I have added something new to replace hot sauce. That is not something I'm going to like. Uh, and I made the wheel much easier to see, so I'm excited. to. We're going to introduce that tomorrow. We don't spin the wheel on Merge World. There's audio podcast and all that. They don't need to hear about me eating horseradish sauce for 10 minutes. All right. So we're traveling up to see what's going on. Uh, ended up in a bit of a debacle uh, that ended with them taking on a young female, human female, mage named Fia. Uh, Fia's been traveling with them. Made their way up into that city, hired by the merchants folks. Hello, Michael. Um, to look into this for them. 
while traveling, had to uh, help defend a caravan that was being attacked by drow and a particularly nasty hill giant. And then made their way to a town and started to head north up towards the mountain. It was along that that trek that they ran into Aaron. Aaron is uh, a human hunter, older human hunter, who uh, had come through Serenity at the very beginning of the adventure and had headed up here to help with the drow situation as well. It's where they found out about it. They'd been looking for him, and sure enough, he was there. He hadn't been able to find any of his friends, so he joined along. That night, as they're making camp, eating dinner, hanging out, everyone starts to get sleepy and pass out. It's almost like someone slipped something in the food who would do such a thing. And, uh... I will go ahead and as this finish up, this is how we left off last time. As the sun's rays dip behind the trees, uh, Dandy sees Aaron's face shimmer. The aged human's skin transforms into an onyx black color as his grayish hair grows long and white. My apologies, little dandelion, is the last thing she hears before the darkness takes her. So Aaron has transformed into a drow elf. <gasps> Gasp. That's what we're going to take on today. Now, I've heard some interesting hypothesis on who this is. I'd be interested to see if anybody was right. So, they are all knocked out unconscious. Not the kind of thing they would normally fall prey to. Um, there have been a few situations in the adventure where they have um, made what I'd call rookie mistakes. And uh, is there a reason for that? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. So we're going to go ahead and continue on. There'll be a chunk of reading today. I've actually been writing for the last four hours. My hand is freaking killing me. <laughs> I used to write all the time when I was younger, you know? Now all I do is type. So when I actually sit down to write, my hand just can't handle it. it hurts so bad. All right. So here, here's where we go. We're going to continue on. Uh, hopefully you guys like where the story goes. Okay. Oh, and, and hopefully your chicken noodle soup is good if you are having chicken noodle soup. All right. So uh, this, today's story is called Behind the Mask. Uh, Mercy comes too quickly, realized... Oh, oh, Mercy comes too, quickly realized she's sitting in a chair in total darkness. The loss of sight is uncomfortable as she's been as she's rarely taken off her magical circlet in almost 20 years. Hello, fruitcake. She tries to move, but as she expected, she was bound tightly. Holding her breath, she quietly listened. She easily recognized Darsh snoring nearby. Other than that, she heard nothing. And that was the story. Thanks for coming. I'm just kidding. Look here. Let's flip. Taking stock of her situation, she knew her armor had been removed, as well as her jewelry. She could not summon her morning star. She heard a small groan from her left. Where am I? She heard Fia ask. Who's there? I'm here, replied Mercy. Are you okay? I think so, the young mage replied. I can't see anything. Be calm, Mercy says. Are you restrained? Yes, I'm tied in a chair, and I can't move. Should I try a spell? No, said Mercy. We don't know what we're dealing with yet. With a loud snort, Darsh came awake. 
What the hell? Mercy heard the sounds of heavy chains moving. Because I think you'll understand, ropes on a chair are not going to do a lot for Darsh. It's going to be some big ropes. Darsh, what can you see? Mercy says quietly. Nothing, he replies. I'm bound and blindfolded. As am I, they hear Artemis say from nearby. We all are, said Dandy calmly, though I guess not for much longer. Why, were you able to get free? No, said Dandy, because we aren't alone. Bravo, little Dandelion, came a voice in the darkness. The reputations you've all built truly do pale in comparison of your true abilities. There's a snap, several torches flare in to light. Nobody lit them. Magic, woo, flare. As quickly as the lights come on, Artemis, Dandy, and Darsh's blindfolds come off as well. Um, obviously, they were blindfolded because they have night vision. Percy, who's also sitting there and is now waking, uh, Fia and Mercy do not. Mercy doesn't want she, her magical circle is taken off. So once the light comes on, they're in torchlight, which is a little odd for some of them to come right out of darkness. They can see that they're in some type of cave, whether it's deep underground or above ground. They don't know, but they assume it's somewhere in the mountain. And there are ten drow surrounding them with crossbows aimed at all of them. No, drow are known for the crossbows. Uh, very good shots, and very often using arrows and bolts that are tipped in poisons and things of kill you or knock you out or make it so you can't move. Lots of different fancy things for Drow. Sitting across the room behind a wooden table was another Drow. Clearly the leader. Mercy's eye narrowed in anger at the sight of him. His hair was cut different, but he wore the same noble and exceptionally well-made Drow armor as he had all those years ago in the Underdark, though it looked much more worn and faded. On the table in front of him sat the magic circlet he had given her, as well as the amulet he'd had Willow and her get for him way back when. You can imagine, different haircut, but same dude. I see you remember me, he said, smiling. It has been quite a while. Well, for a human. Artemis and Dandy were in chairs. Uh, oh, sorry. Artemis and Dandy were in chairs next to Mercy. Looking left and right, she's Artemis on her right, Dandy on her left. Fia, uh, Percy, and Darsh were behind her, so she really couldn't see. She can kind of see Percy over there. She can see Fia over there. Darsh is probably right behind her. So, for those of you wondering, yes, this is the Drow from long, long ago way back in their very first adventure when they were in the Underdark and the one who gave Mercy her magical circlet that lets her see in the dark. So I have minis painted for these guys. I'm going to throw them up here now. Um, I already posted this one on social media. So there's Aaron Demarion, the undead hunter. Um, some people were hoping this is who he was. But there is Aaron Dumerian, the drow. So, 
if you were to go back and look at the original, uh, I believe he's called uh, Rogue Lord because he never gave a name originally. You're going to notice a few things. He's got the same armor on, except this armor looks a little bit more faded and worn. He had a nice long purple cloak. This one's a little roughed up. The hair is, of course, a little different. Um, and if you notice, he's carrying an amulet that looks an awful lot like the one worn by the human, uh, Aaron Demarion. Uh, Aaron Demarion being his name. Now, I was wondering if people would catch on to this long before now, when I mentioned at the very beginning his name sounded like more like an elven name, but it was common for hunters to give themselves nicknames, and he, his crossbow looked like it was of elven design, and he walked like elves. I mean, I've tried to throw a lot of hints in there, um, but I'm not sure if anybody picked up on most of them. Uh, but yeah, this is our same guy from back in the day. I've been waiting for this exact time to bring him back, and I was excited to do so. So the draw one is not currently up on my website, but it will be later tonight. Uh, of course, I tr surprise characters. I try not seeing this. You would have known. <laughs> so got the names on them. So, anyways, that's them. And yes, if you look at the somebody mentioned that he had the same scar on the eyebrow that the old one did, and that's true. I took the old one. And, and basically just re recolored it with the new stuff. So it's the exact same facial structure and everything on the uh, on the drow one there. So I was pretty excited to finally get him out. I wondered if he was weird and not really who he was. Aha! Well, he is who he is. Of course, of course. <laughs> so again, Mercy's looking at him. Because you'll remember, Mercy's the only one in this group that actually met him. Because he only took her and Willow. Dandy um, and Artemis were in the other group. Were they not? Yes. Dandy and Artemis were in the other group. Um, Darsh was there, but he was pretending to be a minotaur slave in one of the drow kingdoms trying to find the magical artifact. And Fig was wandering around trying to find Mook. But it was only Mercy that actually got to see him. Although, everybody else knows the story, so, you know, from the few things that are said, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to say it's, it's inferred that everyone else, except for maybe Percy and Fia, knows who this is, just by the way Mary, uh, Mercy and him are talking. So, Mercy, of course, very irritated, this goes on like, so, did you let me go 20 years ago just to kill me now? That's a bit of a long con, don't you think? And still smiling, he says, no, to be completely honest, I don't know why I let you go all those years ago. Guess even then, I knew that you'd be of use to me one day. Whatever foulness you want from us shall not be done, says Dandy. Aaron smiles, stands up, and comes around the table. He gets down on one knee. He's right in front of Dandy, who's very unhappy. You can imagine, she's very anti-drow. You were the weak link, Dandy, he says. Getting you all here together, right where I need you. It was your hatred of my people that brought you to me. Your hatred that let you ignore the signs around you that there was much more to all of this. Thank you for bringing them to me. Dandy's face went pale and her fury turned to sorrow. He was right, of course. 
she should have been more careful. She'd let anger guide their way, and by doing so, she'd put her friends in danger. Leave her alone, said Darsh. The level of threat in his voice made it clear it was not just bravado. Aaron looked at Darsh, and his smile faded. You could break those chains any time you'd like, couldn't you, Darsh? Yes, replied Darsh coolly, and there aren't near enough of you to kill me before I snap your neck. The crossbows all turned to point at Darsh, but Aaron quickly raised his hands. Then they all lowered. Then I truly do thank you for giving me a chance to speak first. Seems I'm indebted to you. He makes his way back around the table, sits back in his chair. As he does, he reaches up, kind of rubs his brows and his eyes a little bit, as if he's you know, preparing himself. And it's in that moment that Mercy kind of realizes what the difference is. She's been looking at him, and she's like, something's different from before. Again, she only saw him for a little while 20 years ago, but something seemed different. And it's at this point she realizes what it is. He looks tired. He looks exhausted at this point. Looking at his eyes, it looks like they've been rubbed raw. You know, when you're trying to stay awake and so on and so forth. He just looks exhausted. But he begins to speak. Twenty years ago, you came bumbling through the Underdark right into our city. How you'd survived long enough to get that far, and he sighs, frankly was a miracle. You are very lucky that my people found you first. I saw in you then what I desperately needed. Willow. The mention of her name, you can imagine everybody gets it, well, except for Fia and Percy again, because they weren't there. But of the four companions, feel a little sad, the thought of their friend's name, of course. And someone you cared about gets brought up in a conversation years later. It's a little pang of sadness. He stops for a moment and looks at them and says, I want to tell you I was truly sorry to hear of her passing, and I am sorry for your loss. It was not something I expected. He looks at me and goes, but at that time when you came in, I was running out of time, and I was desperate. And here Willow was delivered right to me. Had I known who you really were, what you'd become one day, Things might have been very, very different. But I have to have the amulet, you see. And you all were my last chance. Takes a moment. They soak in the thoughts, of course. Again, Art Mercy was there too, but it was mostly Willow who was needed because it was in a place that only a cleric of good could go to. Um, and it required some spellcasting stuff. But they managed to get the amulet in return for gathering their friends up, Moog and them, and, and get, getting them safely on their way, and he gave her that circlet. Um, he goes, I'm going to be completely honest with you. My original intent was to kill you once you gave me the amulet. You see, I was worried. If I let you go, and then you were caught by others, well, you might tell you a little bit too many things before they finally put you to death, and I was concerned that... It might come back on me. But, for some reason, something stayed my hand. And instead, I decided to let you keep the circlet 
a magical item of no minor proportions. It would help you on your journey, and maybe it'd help me one day. Besides, it allowed me to know where you are at all times. Well, this little revelation does not make Mercy feel happy. Because she almost never takes that off. She's been all around the world at this point. And to think that this drow is known exactly where she is at all times? It's a little concerning. He said, he goes, but thanks to you and to the amulet, I was able to free myself and lead my people from the city. This is when he begins to start kind of telling the stuff that they don't know. You see, not all drow worship the goddess of lies. Drow society is a dangerous one. El drow elves always seeking to gain power at any cost. Pandora revels in the lies and betrayals, and the elder families who ruled the society always sought dominion over all others. But there eventually came to be, in the younger generation, a change of thought, a different idea of the world around them, different from that they were raised and the way their parents and grandparents were. They were tired of all the lies, and the deaths, and the wars against their brothers and sisters. Slowly, they began to gather, find each other, which you have to imagine isn't an easy thing to do in a society where thoughts of that nature would be viewed as a weakness, potentially even traitorous, to find each other, let alone find groups of people that are feeling the same way took many many decades for that type of thing to even start to come into fruition but in secret they made plans began to pray to new gods have different thoughts and ideas and hoped one day to maybe change drow society for the better bring it into a new world a new way of thinking and put an end to all of the suffering because drow society is like that. Um, if you look at traditional Dungeons and Dragons societies, drow have always been um, worship a more traditional Dungeons and Dragons god, if you go that route. Um, but they, it's always been a hierarchy of families. And the higher ranked you are, the more powerful you are. And obliterating or taking over another family is how you gain rank. Just, just wiping a family out, you go up, everybody goes up a notch kind of thing. So it's one of those things where you can imagine it's, it's a life of who's going to assassinate who. You know, if I can weaken that family by killing their son or their daughter, the priest, the priestess, whatever, a wizard. If I can do any of those things, I weaken the enemy, who's really just another family of drow in your own kingdom. This civil war does lead to drow numbers staying relatively small, considering, I mean, there's still thousands in the city that Mercy and Darsh were at all those years ago. But without the wars, I mean, there could be, they could have expanded greatly, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands at this point. Um, and there are more than one cities, of course. So those cities also fight each other on top of all the other stuff I just talked about. So it actually keeps numbers a little bit low. That's correct. Glitch Vision is 100% correct. In, in traditional drow society, which is primarily from the Forgotten Realms 
concept. Duras society is often depicted as matriarchal. Um, the mother of the house runs everything. And usually the females are the priestesses. Now, Merged Worlds, it's very 50-50. Um, it's the it's one of those areas where I'd say that they're stepped past some humans and elves and such, where regular elves, vanilla elves, whatever you call them. <laughs> These uh, drow elves have stepped past the concept of gender, um, male, female, whatever. It doesn't matter. You could be a serious threat. Or you could be a great leader. So it's very mixed, um, and it's not uncommon for you know, a husband and wife or brother and sister to rule a family kind of thing. Um, also in Drow Society, there's a decent amount of inbreeding as well, so husband and wife slash brother and sister. All these things happen. Um, so Merge Worlds does vary from that a little bit, okay, in as much that it's not all matriarchally, because the original goddess and all that stuff, the Spider Queen, that's that stuff's not really here. I've got my own pantheon and such. Um, but in no way are, are, are females viewed as weaker than males in this society. And I, I normally don't have many situations like that in Merged Worlds anyways, but they're, I guess you'd say, truly progressive when it comes to any of the other races in that regard. With the exception of maybe dwarves. Dwarves don't seem to care much either. So, these guys, basically his way of saying is, there was a group of uh, drow elves who didn't like that about society. They didn't want to fight all the time. They wanted to get away from all that kind of stuff. And they hoped that over time, that as they grew and gained power and so on and so forth, they could bring that way of thinking into society as a whole and bring an end to all that. But, I mean, you can imagine that would take centuries for races that could live as long as elves. And how many would die in the meantime, right? I mean, all that stuff could happen. So... That's something they hoped would do over time. You know, again, a very slow process, but a natural one. But he continues. But then came the day that Nylant Firemoon walked out of the darkness and into our lives. He was a being of incredible power. He was trapped between life and death, a partial void, partial man. He could take physical form, but not for, for long periods. Um, that's not something we have dubbed into. He was in the process of becoming a god. He was one step away from being successful. So he's immensely powerful, but he couldn't take a physical form for a super long period of time. It weakened him to do so. Um, the elder families, of course, saw him as a sign and an opportunity. They went from fighting each other to serving him under the promise of power and mastery of the whole world once his transformation had become complete. So he walks out of the darkness. He's more powerful than any individual drow there. You know, what's this human thing here that's overwhelmingly powerful? You can imagine he'd wipe, in, he'd wipe out 10 to 20 with a swipe of his hands. He was very powerful when he did come physically. Um, but he's like... You know, almost like a dark messiah. I am here. I'm halfway to a god. I'm going to finish this process. I'm going to become a god. And those who help me, those who serve me faithfully, when I rule this world as his original goal, the only god left, why, those who follow me would be the ones I'd put in charge of everything. Not just the underdark, not just underground. The surface as well. 
And drow, while well, they live underground, there's always the there's always their lie. The big drow lie has always been that drow elves were forced underground by other elves. Um, and that's not to say that might not be true on some worlds. Merged worlds is a mixture of many, 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 many worlds. So, I mean, the chance that that happened in some is also very possible. Some fled there because they had a different way of thinking, and then some may have been forced there because they were evil and stuff and did horrible things and so on and so forth. Um, there can be many different reasons why drow came as they are, but drow have always kind of been servants of Pandora. So you can imagine they wouldn't be super happy or she wouldn't be super happy when all of a sudden they start worshipping him instead of Pandora. Hmm? But that's kind of what happened. Worshipped him as a god-to-be, if you will. People basically sold their souls to darkness. We'll do whatever you need, of course. Serve you loyally, give you armies. But the main thing that he needed was the artifacts. So he began sending drow out to find them. And he only sent the people he really trusted. People that were, you know, doesn't, in his eyes, didn't have to be of high rank in drow society, but someone he could trust who was loyal to him. The new generation, of course, grew incredibly fearful. Right? As things got worse and worse and worse, because it would for them, it was decided that their only chance would be to flee the city, try to start somewhere new. You know, their, their hope was to try to convert everything, you know, over time, bring people to a new way of thinking, a more peaceful way of thinking. But he's just driving it hardcore the other way, and it's basically do or die in that situation. And they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to live those kind of lives. So they decided that your only hope was to flee. And, and it's at this point that Aaron's, you know, he's been telling the story, but he kind of leans in, and he's like looking right at Mercy. And they look at him and goes, because you have to understand he knew. You see, Nylat could somehow read a man's heart, could see false de devotion. He knew if you were loyal or not. I saw so many of my friends and allies put to death because he could see inside of them. So you imagine that. Again, part of his power is he, someone's lying to him. Giving him, you know, oh, of course I, yeah, I'm totally going to follow you. We're going to kill this guy after midnight. You know, he sees that stuff and kills them. And the Aaron, of course, and his allies would totally believe that's true because 90% of the people he's having killed were part of their group. But the amulet there was their saving grace. Legend said its power was said to be so powerful. I wrote that bad. Said it was to be so powerful that it could mask a man's uh, lies from Pandora herself. It will hide your lies. It'll make everything you say look truthful against magical spells and the like. It's the one thing. Because it was important for them to have it. Now, just think about that. One amulet probably at least a group of how many? What's one amulet going to do for them? This is what he says. What, what good would an amulet be? Let me tell you. You see, using it 
the leader of our group, could stay hidden. He was of royal blood, you see, and a noble of a powerful house. He'd managed to keep away from Nilat for many, many months. Stayed away from him completely. Which isn't that hard when you're out on patrols and in charge of different security things. I mean, Nilat didn't have the chance to meet all of the thousand elves in that small period of time. So he kept himself away from Nilat in the hopes that he wouldn't be found. But it turns out because he'd done such a good job of staying away and keeping the border patrol safe and all that kind of stuff, that he'd been chosen to go to the surface in search of the Godforge artifacts. And he would be given his orders from Nilat himself. So Nilat's going to... Most Drow didn't know what they were. There's items he needs to finish his thing. He's not going to tell everybody about these magical artifacts. He's only going to tell those loyal people he can, he can trust to send out and get them that he believes are going to bring them back. So, in this situation, the leader of their group now finds out you know, he's going to have to meet Nilat. Now, he knew that it was going to happen eventually. They'd been trying to get this amulet for a long time, but all of a sudden time was running out. Because he was out on a mission, per se. Because uh, you know, very often, drow scouts will go out into the Underdark for several weeks or months at a time on patrols or attacking other things or, uh, like, say, other dark dwarves, whatever races may live in the vicinity, capture other races, bring them back as slaves, mining. There's all sorts of different reasons why drow would go out into the Underdark for a period of time. But uh, once he returns, he's going to have to meet with Nylon. But then you see, there came Willow and her friends, and finally, potentially, access to the amulet that needed a cleric of good, and a druid counts. Druids are basically clerics of the god, goddess of nature, and his hope is like, you're the last one we've got, because while people down here are praying to different gods and they're trying to find different paths, nobody's walking around the Underdark as a cleric of something good. You just were not going to last more than a day, you know. So they didn't have any good clerics of their own that they could just send in there, which is why it was hidden the way that it was. Because for that very reason, you couldn't just get it. It's supposed to be a very powerful amulet. But Willow showed up with mercy, and we finally had a chance. And so, we sent you in, and you were able to get it. And it was good, because we were very, very much running out of time. Before he could use the amulet, though, the leader of the group was captured. Well, was found out. Not captured, found out. Because, you see, his wife, a woman that he'd loved with all of his heart, had turned him in in exchange for a very powerful gift. So his wife had figured out that He's the leader of this group. Maybe she was in the group as well. Aaron doesn't say. But she decides to turn in her husband, betray him, and be rewarded for doing so. The amulet was finally ours. But it had come too late. So she and her brother, his wife, she and her brother had learned of his leadership of the rebels and had been uh, 
and, and they had sent word to Nilat, and Nilat had sent his forces to capture him and return him so he could be put to death and be made an example of for anyone else who should try to break ranks, if you will. Drow at the table, Aaron gets quiet for a moment. His mind seems lost in memories. You then, Percy says. That was you, the leader of the group. How did you escape? Aaron looks, looks at her and quietly says, No, I was the one chosen to take his life. I was his bodyguard. Personal security. Responsible for his safety, as I had been for nearly his whole life. But when I arrived at my lord's castle, Nilat's forces had already attacked. I fought my way through a back entrance that I was aware of, and made my way up into the chambers to find him. I gave him the uh, amulet, pressed it into his hand, and begged him to use it. Save himself. Flee the city. Save his life. But he would not. Even then, he cared only for his people. I drew my sword then. I would kill as many as I could before he was taken. I would make sure the cost was great. But he embraced me instead and whispered that it all fell to me now. I must get our people to safety. Now, as he let me go, I realized he'd put the amulet round my neck. The sound of Nilat's forces could be heard coming up the stairs towards the chamber. They began banging on the door, attempting to break it down. My lord quickly reached out and pulled my dagger from his, my belt. Without hesitation, stabbed himself in the stomach. The door then burst open, and Nilat's forces rushed in, led by my lord's brother-in-law, Toradel. I stood there, sword drawn, my dagger in my lord's body as he lay writhing in pain on the ground. Toradel stared at me and then smiled. I didn't think you had it in you, he said to me. He was a traitor, was all that I would manage to say. Both my lord and I were taken to see Nilat. I saw my lord's traitorous bride sat at his side, the reward for her treachery. Nilat was told of the events that had happened, and I was brought before him. He looked me in the eyes and asked me whether I was loyal to him or loyal to my lord. I must admit I've never been more frightened in my life as I was in that very moment. I swear... The man stared into my soul. But he smiled and said he was happy that my lord's traitorous weakness had not affected me. The amulet had hid the truth. He then told me to take my lord's head. An honor it should be to slay the leader of traitors. I looked at my lord, and he smiled and nodded, and then lowered his head, revealing the back of his neck. I raised my sword, and as I brought it down, 
to take the life of the man I revered. In his last moment, I heard him whisper, take them home. At that time, the room goes quiet as Aaron struggles through his grief. So Aaron was not the original leader of the group. That drought died, but it was passed on to him. And the time period that he was trying to get the amulet, he was in a kind of a mad dash to get it to try to save the leader of the group. They didn't get there in time, sadly. After a moment, Aaron continues his story, and they can tell from his voice again, he just sounds exhausted. And none of the other drow around the room are showing any anything at all. They're just watching the other group. The crossbows aren't pointing at him now, but they're watching. He continues with the story. It took another month to make all the needed preparations for us to flee. I found that the amulet did more than just hide my intentions. It could also change my appearance, getting me access to tools and supplies and places I normally wasn't able to go. I could change the way I looked to anything, any race, even people that already exist. But finally, after a month of planning and gathering, came the day we fled, sneaking off into the night. 300 strong, carrying as much supplies as possible. Getting out of the city wouldn't have been easy. Aaron would have had to arrange that any of the guards and such in that area were part of his group, and the ones that weren't would have had to been dealt with pretty quietly, quickly. They would have had to have a path, a place to go to meet, because they couldn't have all just walked out in a group, of course. And then they would have had to hurry, because you're sure they're going to be chased, right? So, and then doing all that without anybody finding out about it. And most of the people in this group were not noble of birth. Most of them were commoners, people that were more often the fodder of these battles and wars between the, the, the houses or the families of drow. The people that really had no hope of ever gaining in station. Um, men and women who were warriors and so on and so forth. There might have been a couple low-level wizards in there. Something like that. They fled into the darkness and it took months, but they made their way to the only place they thought they might be safe from their kin. And that was the surface. Because they knew getting out there, and if you've ever read a book about a drow, drow coming to the surface is not a comfortable time when you've never seen sunlight before. It could take weeks or months for you to acclimate to even being able to see under the sun. And it was difficult for these people to do that. When they finally reached the surface, it, again, took weeks and months to acclimate. In fact, even though it's been years, some of them still struggle with it today. Usually the older ones in the group, the ones that are alive longer. But for the last 20 years, Aaron and his people have been moving across the world and below, looking for a place of their own, a place to start new lives. That's a lot of responsibility. I'm taking 300 people. I'm basically taking on a role of leadership that I do not feel qualified for. 
after knowing I just I had to be the one to take nobody blames him for that in the society I mean with the situation there's pro not a person there that blames him for that other than him right he blames himself for all that if I'd have gotten there quicker if I'd have been able to do this faster but we were not to know any peace everywhere we went we were met with fear and suspicion we were threatened very often attacked many who came to the surface are no longer with us we found no rest constantly hounded and on the move for years and then we found this mountain it offered access to the surface and the comforts of the depths you're going to feel more comfortable underground this is kind of how it works at least in the, the beginning right Sad. Oh, here it was. Oh, miss me. Cover uh, that. It was far from any home or kingdom, though it turns out sadly not far enough. The land here is no good for farming, and hunting is sparse. It's just not a lot. Water we have supply to, but there's not a lot of animals running around the mountain, and it's all rocky ground. We'd have to go pretty far into the valley to get to any land that's farmable. If it wasn't for an underground lake here inside the mountain that was a bunch of fish in it, they live mostly on the fish and the water that they have. But there's still a good number of them. And the lake is starting to run low on fish. They just can't breed as fast as we do. I tried, he says. I tried to go to the farmsteads and the cities around. I tried to buy anything tools food anything we could get we have gold and jewels to offer one thing about living in the underdark there's no lack of wealth but it doesn't do much good for us now if we can't use it to buy anything not only would they ignore any offer i made rarely did i have the chance to make it so quickly were we run away or chased out and so we struggled to survive. Thankfully, using the amulet, I'm able to go into some of the nearby towns and get some small amount of supplies, but I have to be careful. You know, I use, if I walk out of there with a wagon's load full of stuff, people are going to start wondering where I'm taking it. So it's a challenge. As such, you can imagine my surprise after months of this. When I was one day, disguised as a human, trying to buy some dried meat from a butcher, and then I heard of the attacks by drow on the caravans in this area. How could this be? Did our people still chase us, and have they found us this far? Had some of my people done this without my knowledge, their hunger and fear leading them to acts of desperation? I returned back to our mountain as quickly as I could. But after talking with my people, I learned it wasn't any of us. And our people were quite upset about it. We searched for other drow. Were there more drow hiding here? Were they trying to get our attention? Were they looking for us? But we did not find other drow. What instead we found were imposters. Someone has either hired or forced a large group of humans and half-elves to attack the caravans and put the blame on us. 
Why? I can only guess. But they paint themselves dark. They attack in the night. All in the chaos that they're leading. And all of the blame ends up on us. But the cities offers of treasure and wealth in exchange for dealing with us their problem has been heard far and wide and people have come for that reward we've had to defend ourselves my people are starving and fighting for their lives at no time is there a day go by where we feel safe here and with the lack of food and supplies i don't think my people will make it through the winter Kind of feel bad for the guy at this point. <laughs> and so I decided to take a chance, a huge chance. I came to you. I've kept tabs on you all over the years. Kept tabs on all of you over the years. If half was what was said about you was true, you might be the only ones who could help us. And might be the only ones willing to. So... That's a lot to be thrown on these folks, right? Because you can imagine, during the events that he's talking about, while he's and his people are trying to escape, I thought the attacks were made to look like drow, but not. There you go. I was, I, I definitely threw clues in there, right? No bodies were ever found. The biggest clue was the yelling hooting and hollering from the trees and so on and so forth. And drow are silent killers. They don't make a noise for nothing. I also talked about the quality of their arrows and bolts from the Fletcher that they talked to. Drow do not use shoddy material. Uh, in fact, they're known for some of the highest quality material when it comes to arrows and bolts and things of that nature. So I, th I was through a lot of stuff out there that could lead them to believe. Now, someone asked a great question early on. Weren't the hill giants in league with the drow back in the day? That is a good question. But they were in league with not the drow. They were in league with Nylad. As were orcs and goblins and humans and even some half-elves and elves. So what if, hypothetically, a group of them stayed together all this time and didn't join the group that fell under Zarin, their old friend. You know what I mean? What if Zarin took leadership of a bunch of them? When they showed up, he didn't have an army's worth. What if there were some still out there? What if they were for hire? So, that was really cool. Somebody put that link together. I was, I was genuinely pleased when somebody put that link together. It was you. It was Michael who said that. Yeah, where they were linked because I was like, that's exactly what that was. That was a, that's exactly the hint that was supposed to give this. If anybody picked up on what this group could be, because they'd know how to fight. They were warriors. So, Aaron and his people. If you mentioned, I said these got the uh, this city, this area has been plagued by elves for about a year at this point. Plagued by a year, year and a half, something like that. 
uh, but, which is the time that Aaron and them came through. Aaron and his people showed up. They probably lived in the mountains for several months before anyone knew they were there. With all the bad luck they had, they're going to try to stay away from humans, probably build some type of defense just in case something bad happens. Find caverns and such that go deep, so if worse came down to it, they're not stuck in the mountain. That's a great thing about if you're a dwarf or if you're a drow, you know, somebody backs you into a set of caves and mines, man, you just go deeper. You find your way out eventually. Now, going deep into the dark, dark underground is not an issue for dwarves and drow and things like that, right? Even things like hobgoblins and goblins going down deep into caves. Well, there's no such thing as a dead end if there's, you know, an opening anywhere. So is the story about Nylat's son actually true then? What a wonderful question. Let's talk about that here in just a minute. I'll tell a little bit more of the story first, and then we'll see. <clears throat> so, of course, he lays all that stuff down at their feet. <laughs> Here's all the stuff I tell you about you. This is what's happened to us. We're not the ones who are attacking these people, but someone's trying to make it look like we are. My people are starving. We've got no food. Probably not going to make it through the winter. For the record, late summer. At least right here. It's probably winter in other places. Merge Worlds is all messed up like that. But right now in this area, an area where they can't farm, you can imagine that, right? Rocky area. you got to get down deep into the farming, and that's where the humans are living at that point. <clears throat> he lays this all up before them and gives them time to think about it. And it's dandy who speaks first. And how in the world could we believe that any of that is even true? You've just given us a, a big heartfelt story. But why in the world would we believe that's true? It's not like Drow haven't betrayed people before. You can tell her from her voice, she's got a little anger in it. Aaron stands up again. It's true. You've no reason to believe me. In fact, I've already lied to you just to get you here. And he points to one of the drow and nods at Dandy. And the drow comes over and cuts her bonds. Dandy's hands are free. She stands up cautiously. Like, All right, what's this then? He reaches behind, he pulls something out of the back of his belt, and he throws it to her. She snatches it out of the air. It's rare that Dandy doesn't catch something thrown at her. You could throw a knife at her. And that was one of the, just as a brief aside, uh, I don't know if that's in 3rd or 5th edition, but in 2nd edition, you have, you know, if you have the right skills, uh, there's a non-weapon proficiency uh, juggling. And... That's one thing I really enjoyed about second edition. A lot of the skills could be used in really different ways than you'd expect. Juggling. Someone throws a knife at you, there you have a chance of just catching it right out of the air. Because you catch knives out of the air all the time. That's something you can do. You're literally professional level juggling if you take a juggling as a skill. You can juggle to entertain people, but if someone whips a dagger at you, you've got a chance of catching it and being able to throw it right back. Um, one of the skills is rope use. You can tie really cool knots and loops and snares. Well, that's cool. You could imagine that for 
you know, catching things or, or making sure stuff does while you work on a boat. But if you use a whip and you have that ability, you can start doing all sorts of Indiana Jones stuff. You can start, you know how to use the whip to grab onto things, pull things, not just whip and hurt people. You can literally use it to knot and twist. You know how to twist it and then pull it tight enough that it will support weight and then how to loosen it again. These are all skills that are available if you learn to combine the different abilities together. And when a player comes to me and they're like, hey, I got this ability. If I was to use this and this together, would I be able to do this? And we'll talk about it. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe different degrees depending on the situation. But I really like that. I like being able to mix and match those abilities. And those are built in. I'm not making them up. You read the player's handbook and say, with this juggling, you have a chance of catching a dagger. It's like it was designed to be used that way. I'm a big fan of non-weapon proficiencies. Um, so he reached out and tosses something to Danny, snatched it right out of the air. As soon as it hits her hand, she knows what it is. It's her dagger of flame in its sheath. It has a very special sheath that came with it. It's a very nice sheath. She knows the feel of it very well. She doesn't have to look at it. He then drops to his knees and pulls open his shirt. I understand your hatred of my race. I understand the reasons why. And I have to say that of many of my people out there in the world, I feel the exact same way. But my people are different. They just want a place to live. If your vengeance demands a price, then take my life. Let my blood cool the burning in your heart, but please help my people. Get them somewhere to safety. Because my life is a small price to pay for their survival. There's already far too much blood on my hands anyways. So Dandy stands there, blade in hand. Doesn't have the blade out. She got it still in the sheath. Flame. Yeah. Um, uh, blade in hand. Looking at Aaron, all she can see is the drow from long ago. Not this guy, obviously, but the guy that she hates. When, right? And all the dead kender. That's what she sees. She just sees that guy and all the dead kender on her. But in the back of her mind, she's reminded of something else. You know, Danny has that little argument with herself. Behave, Danny. Stop being a Kendra. You know, Kendra often talk to themselves. And what she's, she's thinking about the story, but in the back of her mind, what she sees is serenity. When they first got to serenity, it was just groups of people who had been beaten down and treated bad for decades, if not generations, just wanted a place to live. And then she thinks of the doors of Corman, good people who stuck literally living outside the door to their home for hundreds of years, who just wanted their home back. They just wanted to be in a place that was theirs. And then she thinks of all the Kender, much like gully dwarves. Kender are very often considered a nuisance race. They're often shunned chased away, sometimes even killed, just because they're a kender. Hey, Pigman. With an angry sigh, she draws her dagger and then begins cutting Mercy's bonds. 
I hate making big decisions, she grumbles to herself. I, I just, I was really happy with that. I was in that moment. I was just really, boy, oh, I hate making big decisions. Why do I have to be the, why couldn't it have been Mercy? She's better at this, you know, like, just frustrated. I do remember you. How goes it? Today is our Dungeons and Dragons story night. So I'm telling my tale. Episode 68. Let's do some math real quick, real quick, guys. Just because I'm, uh, haven't done it in a while. Let's take a quick look at ye old calculator. And we'll go here. 68 episodes on an average of two and a half hours each equals 170 hours worth of merged worlds exists at this point. 170 hours. That's over seven full days of story. If you wanted to sit and listen to it without stopping, you'd have to go more than seven days to listen to the entire story. And that's average. Some of them, there's one, I think, one or two that's a little under two and a half hours. But there's a lot that go three, three and a half. So, you know, that's that's a lot of story. I'll be honest, when I started this, I never, I thought, like, I'd be amazed to get to level, or like, story chapter episode 50 was a, just kind of shocking to me that I got quite that far, right? So Dandy goes, starts cutting the bonds and Aaron motions and the other drow step in and start removing them as well, unlocking the chains from Darsh. Darsh was chained to a wall, by the way, not given a lot of wiggle room. But straight up, Darsh looked at those chains and was like, I can break these chains. You can imagine... They've heard stories. Darsh is a Minotaur. Minotaur is strong. They've, they've dealt with Minotaur before. There were Minotaur slaves in the Drow Kingdom when they were there. That's how Darsh was able to sneak in with them. So they know they can be strong. But Darsh is strong even for a Minotaur. And what he said was true. He rips those chains either out of the wall, which is more likely than the chain breaking. Uh, it's where it's bolted to the wall. He busts it right out. But even either way... Now you've got an angry, angered Darsh with several feet of chains attached to his arm. And maybe 15 feet between him and Aaron. It could shoot him with every crossbow, poisoned or not. He would break that man's neck before Darsh would hit the ground. You know, that's, that's, this isn't, this isn't, you know, that's just a fact. Darsh knew this. Aaron knew this. So when Darsh didn't do that, it's because Darsh wanted to know why they were there. He's, Darsh isn't an idiot. He's angry. And until he started giving Dandy some shit, he was willing to let this go on. And then he's like, okay, guy, let me make you aware. You may have a problem if you don't back off my friend. So they're all unlocked and such. And Mercy says, Mercy says, we've made no decisions. We've made no promises. Other than we we agree to listen. And you've told us this. Let's 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 get all the cards. Let's find out everything. And he says, Yeah, of course. Come with me. He opens up, there's a door, which wasn't there before. That's something you all look at. Like there's no doors. It's hidden by illusion. 
Drow are very magical. Very spooky people. The door was moved. There is a small mage outside the door. Not small, I should say that. There is a young mage, uh, uh, which is the equivalent to low-level mage, right? Can do basic stuff. Maybe second, third level spells, if that. Um, not, you know, because, again, this is a, a group of people that are almost all young. If anything, Aaron's probably one of the oldest people here because he'd been a bodyguard for his lord, their leader, since he was born. Right? He was already an experienced and trained warrior before that. Uh, and it would have been... For the record, no, I don't have a name for his lord because I didn't need one. But uh, <laughs> down the road, maybe. Um, Aaron's lord probably brought him around to that way of thinking. right? But because of his experience and his skills, it would make sense that in that group of people, he would be given a, sit a, a position of authority. Right? training, like all these guys are trained as drow warriors. There's nobody there that's a slouch as a warrior. If you're a slouch as a warrior, you don't make it through training in drow society. If you're an adult warrior of a drow, you are a very good warrior. That's just how that works. And so here's a guy who's really good at it, so, you know, powerful. But most everybody in the, this place is going to be of a younger generation. And these are elves, right? A younger generation could be the last 300 years. You know? I mean, that elves can live 1,000 years. Looking at Aaron, there's no way to tell how old he is. But I'll give, give, you, I'll give you a hint. The fact that when he took on a human body, and the human body was a body of age, would reflect more his mental image of himself, right? So it's like, I can make myself look like anybody. I could be a younger hunter, middle aged. I made myself look like an older because in my mind, this is who I represent. People would just naturally do that, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I had an amulet. I would be much more skinny and I would look a lot more like Superman. But the point is, still, I wouldn't make myself look like a 16-year-old Superman. I'd still make it someone my age, right? Uh, that even goes for the mages, ironically enough. Any drone mage could easily whip someone with their staff. And that's very true. And that's and that's a thing too, because like when you're like, and it seems it can seem odd, but I kind of would view drow society as an advanced class, right? They go to school or whatever, but they're in the advanced classes. So when they walk out of training, everybody else walks out of training. For drow, it was already ten times longer because they were in there for fifty freaking years because they lived for such a long time. So, you're like, okay, you're all trained. Go out there. You're a level one fighter. A human comes out of training for five years. You're a level one fighter. Go. That that human is not going to take that drought. It's just not going to happen. He, he may put up a good fight. But that drought still has tons of experience. You know? And so, that, that it's going to be an edge one way or another. And with mages, the same as way. It's like, okay, cool. I'm a level one mage. I mean, I can cast third-level spells already. I've been a level one mage for the last 300 years, but by God, I'm a level one mage in my society. I walk out onto the world, I'm a 10 or 11-level mage, you know? Uh, it's just how it's viewed. If everybody's as strong as that mage, it's not that impressive. You walk on the surface where everybody's much weaker, that becomes a powerhouse. So that's when we were the drow, even though they were smaller in numbers, and they've lost people fighting to survive, probably to other things like illnesses, because you can imagine 
they don't have a lot of healing. There are no clerics of healing chilling in the drow society. Not to say there couldn't be. But there aren't. There could be over time. These guys are not... But you also have to look at it from the point of view as somebody gets sick. Everybody's got home remedies. But all their home remedies are from miles under the surface. They can walk in the forest and like, I don't know which of these are poisonous and which of these are not. They don't have experience with trees and stuff like that. At least not surface trees. So even the home remedies and stuff that they have, it would be very hard for them to say, oh, this root crushed up would be good for pain or inflammation or whatever the case may be. They don't know these things. So when they try to buy medicine and they're trying to buy supplies, when I say buying supplies, medicine is very often one of the key things they're looking for. Not even magic. Because they've probably got magic, right? They probably have maybe even some minor healing potions they brought with them. They would have brought stuff, but those would have dwindled over 20 years. There's nobody making more because they don't have any clerics. Even a cleric of Pandora can make a healing potion. You don't have to be a healing cleric to make a healing potion. Yours are just way better. That makes sense. Just like Artemis could make a, 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 a potion of something else that's not necessarily healing, if it's a cleric-based ability, mages make mage stuff. Throwing that out there. You don't have to be a cleric of healing. Lots of clerics can cast healing spells. So you should be able to make a healing potion. In my mind, if you can cast a healing spell, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to cast, make a healing potion if you're strong enough and have the knowledge to do it. So they walk out through this door. Young mage you know, nods to Aaron because he's definitely looking as an elder and leader in this situation. And as they step out, they step into another small room and sitting over there on some tables, all their stuff. They all start gathering their stuff. The room's lit by a torch. They gather up and they're putting all their armor and stuff back on. You know, and everybody's just quietly, all the drawers just quietly waiting for them to get their stuff on. Mercy puts a ring on. Morningstar pops in her hand, sticks it in the belt. Darsh puts his bracelet back on. You know, because they took everything. And, and again, they're going to know if you're wearing something magical magic. Well, that's everything. Strip that person down. <laughs> he was like, they get to Percy. Okay, he's got a ring of protection. Take that one ring off. But this person, everything except the underwear is magic. Let's be safe. Take the underwear too. Get it all off. <laughs> you gotta be careful, right? So, they all put their stuff back on. And as they do, you know, they're kind of done. Mercy turns back towards them and Aaron's standing there and he's holding out the circlet again. Mercy looks at it for a minute. Takes it. Puts it back on her head. And she immediately feels a bit more comfortable. Because you get used to that, right? She can immediately see better. And the fact that he's handing it back to her, she is planning on having a conversation a little bit later about that knowing where he she is at all times thing. Because maybe sometimes she wants to be a little hidden, you know? She doesn't want people to know where she is. So that's something, uh, make sure nobody else, that can fall into the wrong hands kind of idea. But once everybody's got their gear back on and such, and... Percy, you can understand, once again, Percy feeling horrible about this whole situation. Once again, Artemis has been knocked unconscious and captured by Drow, and he was not able to stop it. A lot of, Mer of Artemis's guards have a rough life, because most of the stuff that's strong enough to catch Artemis, way too strong for them to stop. Lucas being the one potential op um, thing, but not anymore, right? So, get all this stuff back on. They got all your gear. They're still leaving some torches on because Fia and Percy can't see in the dark. 
Once they're ready, they start leading them through some tunnels. As they're passing by some tunnels, you can see they can see that there are like furs or cloths, blankets hanging over entrances. Usually there's some light inside. Small, probably like a candle or a small torch. And she assumes these are small living quarters. And from the looks of them, they don't look big. And after a few minutes, there's another large tarp ahead of him. And he looks back at him and reaches up and kind of pulls it down. And they step forward and they're at the edge of a very large cavern. What he described is correct. On the other side, the beginnings of a lake. The rock comes right down to the lake, but from where they are, you can pretty much assume the lake goes further underneath. It may go down under the rock some, but there's supply there. You can imagine that water's probably cold all the time. Underground water is always cold. There's no warm underground water. Unless it's next to lava, and then that might accidentally turn into... Yeah, that's Minecraft. <laughs> Obsidian. But, uh, yeah. So, she, uh, they're looking, and... and what they see immediately brings the truth of his statement. There are people all over the place. In just rough tents, um, you know, skin and stuff. Some things, some, obviously there's been some managed to get some wood. They built some ramshackle little homes and such, but it looks like they walked into the poorest section of Paxawal, looking at the homeless people. And there's torches everywhere. They're constantly trying to acclimate themselves to the light. So even at night, they keep the lights on bright and such, so that way they can adjust to it. There's other entrances, and they can see drow, armed, standing at those, like guards. In case anything tried to come in, you can assume that there's more guards outside at the surface. They don't know how deep they are at this point. Heck, they could be higher and in the mountain, for all they know. But they see people. There's still at least a couple hundred of them. There's probably over 200. And by the age of some of the children running around, some of them have been born on the surface. 20 years, it's going to happen. But as they walk down some rickety stairs that are built there, sturdy enough, you know. They don't work with a lot of wood in the underdark. So going on the stairs and into the crowd of people, everybody's like, oh, crap. Because these people look bad. They are, you know, they, they're disheveled. They have, you know, cleaning is minimal. I mean, they're washed, of course. Well, drow are not known to be stinky people. But they only have so much. Not a lot of things like soap they're going to find. You know, can't buy anything from anybody. Trying to learn to make it from surface stuff. I'm sure that they're, what few mages and herbalists they have have come up with some things, but not a whole lot. So, and it's easy to see how skinny they are. These are people who are not eating a lot. They are rationing their food at this point. Aaron said that the lake had a large amount of fish, but all the people here, not being their only source of food, totally understand how that could be the, you know, uh, running out of fish. Some sounds lead their eyes to look over on the opposite side. On the far side, there seems to be some rickety kind of wooden fences set up and they can see that there's two cows and a few chickens over there um, Aaron sees them looking and says yeah, we found them wandering in the woods where they escaped from someone's farm I'm not sure unfortunately the pricks who are pretending to be drow 
have killed several people at Farmstead and other people have fled and left their homes. Sometimes they couldn't take their livestock with them. We're not just going to let them starve, especially with us starving. So we have taken a few when we need to, yes. We've always tried to leave some form of gold or money in the home so when they get back they can hopefully find it. We don't leave it sitting on the table, you know. But we do what we believe would be a fair price. That's what we would have offered had we tried to buy it from them directly if they'd have spoken to us. So, you know, that's kind of where he stands. But yeah, they have a little bit here and there, and there's going to be some hunting. And as deadly well, they are their crossbows, they're not going to miss a lot. Um, but, have, you know, there's little campfires all over the place. People are looking at them like, ooh. And like I said, most of these people are commoners. You can see that a lot of the clothes they're wearing were a mistake. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. I spent my whole life living in the Underdark. Right? I dress like a drow. I have any you know, clothing, robes, sandals, whatever I wear. This is what I wear. I gather up a bunch of those clothes and I go to the surface. I don't have anything warm to wear. It's cool in the Underdark, but I'm used to that. So I don't have big old heavy fur coats. I don't have boots made for walking on the type of material, gravel and stuff of that nature, mountain climbing. A lot of the clothing they have were capes and nice clothing that are obviously worn now and are patched. You're going to see spots of patches and things like that. Um, but they were going to a place they'd never been. They didn't know how to pack. So they took what they thought they were going to need. And I guess it was probably a little bit ignorant that they, or whatever, that they thought, we'll bring a bunch of money and buy more supplies when we get there. Not quite realizing the hatred they would deal with on the surface, because none of them had ever been there. I'm popping a junior mint once in a while. Forgive me. <laughs> a little hungry. No one has to say a single word. No one has to mention a thing. Without prompting, without being asked, without even a, a hopeful glance, Artemis immediately starts wading her way in and healing people. You sick? What do you got? Infection in your toe? Give me your foot. What do you got? A cough? Come here, let me clear that up. Artemis is like, okay, this, these are the, you know, in her mind, immediately, these are the people that need me the most in the world, 99% of the time. The poor people who have nothing else. And it doesn't matter if Artemis is the a thousand becomes a thousand year old high priestess of the world she's going to roll up her robe sweaters and she's going to get in there and she's going to start healing some people because why would she not that's what her life is devoted to and the sick and needy nobility means nothing to artemis you can be the richest man in the world offering a million gold pieces to the temple to heal this person first. It's like, get in line, dude. The sick kid over here from the poverty section, he's getting his right now. You got to wait. Uh, extra barrel of pickled fish. You are exactly correct. Mercy immediately busts open the chest of holding. That was actually the next thing. Well played, Ashley. And immediately starts pulling out every bit of food supplies that they have. Because Lord knows they can fill up. They bring out the pickled fish, which you can imagine they're probably a little tired of the fish, but they've got dried rations. They bring seeds with wheat. They got wheat in there. Not wheat, you know, grain. That's what I'm looking for. They can make porridges out of, and they just start bringing up dried meats and such and just start giving it out. And people start coming over like, what? Someone's got a sandwich? You're giving a sandwich? And they come over and they're like, what's going on? 
they start passing it out, right? And they, they, they don't stop there. They're like, hey, over in this one corner is a chest full of long swords. Let's get these guys some weapons. Your gear, not going to be holding up well. It is commonly known in regular D&D that drow weapons and clothing will eventually fall apart when it comes to the service because it was not meant, never seen sunlight and the heat warmth of the sun. They would deal with some of that. Um, which is one reason why his armor looks so faded and such. It's probably the best armor. He had really good armor and it's probably somewhat magical in nature. So that's why he's still using it. But they start pulling that out. Bandages. You know, the rest of the party, even Dandy Darsh can help, right? With some of that, Darsh will start lugging up heavy stuff at a time, carrying out barrels of pickled fish. Dandy can help pass things out. Along with Fia. Uh, Fia, immediately, you know, they start saying, because Fia being there, they start pulling out things they've got, like healing salves and, you know, not potions per se, but here's a here's a bottle of this thing that will help when you're sick. And she immediately starts talking to their wizards who have also become their healers with what little medicines they've been able to learn from their own uh, and, and begin starts to, hey, okay, this is the stuff you're looking for. What have you got here? This? Don't ever eat this. This will kill you. What do you got? This will heal you. Bring it here. And start, because she knows as a maid, she's going to know a lot about plants and animals and things about the best part of basic training as a wizard. You know? You're going to start talking about that stuff. So, without even really being told, they just immediately wade in hip deep and start doing what they would do if this was a poor human community they'd come across. Because to this people, even in this moment, Dandy doesn't care. She sees sick little kids running around and she doesn't worry about it. These are hungry little kids. If I got some pickled fish, these kids are getting the pickled fish. So, they start taking out, you can imagine the other things they have blankets in there, a plenty. Lamp oil, a plenty with torches, things like that. Sharpening stones. It's a room of supplies that they keep well stocked down in there. And so, you know, again, blankets and all that kind of stuff, also greatly needed. The rooms with the tarps over top, you find out, aren't actually personal rooms for people. They're rooms of sick. They're the ill ones who are staying away from everybody else to try to keep it from spreading. Hearing this, Artemis is in a rush. She's like, I've got to get to those people quick if they're the worst ones. She gets led back up there by another one of the drow, and she gets in there and starts dealing with them. So you can imagine she's going to burn through her healing pretty quick, but they've also got healing potions and all that stuff. People who need it are going to get it. And there's a lot of food in there. Again, there's a couple hundred people. It's not going to feed them all for, for even a week. But it's definitely going to help when added to their rations reading fish and water a little bit of dried bread now we've got some grain we can make some porridge what have we got that we can make porridge potatoes are there potatoes around potatoes are growing damn near anything let's go get some potatoes there's some potatoes out here and and that would be something that very often dandy would probably do in this situation she might go out there with some you know because you can imagine over the next day or so this is what's going to be going on they're going to be learning things about the group learning people who are in trouble, helping where they can. Dandy's going to leave through the caverns with several of the drow to go looking for things that will help. Dandy knows some of that stuff. She's wandered around a lot. She's also having to explain to them, you know, she starts explaining to them about undead and stuff. Does she need to? Yeah. Are there undead in the Underdark? Yes. But not nearly as many. You're not going to run into a lot of zombie hordes walking through the Underdark. What you will find are some really big undead monsters. So fighting some really big undead cave monster, the drow might know what to do in that situation. 
500 zombies come walking up the hill, what do we do there? You know, if you've never had to deal with that. So she's teaching them things about hunting animals on the on, on the surface. You can imagine that in this situation, they're they don't they're not doing this. But they're all sitting there with notepads, like because that's the kind of thing they're taking in everything they can. And you have to imagine that Aaron's going to be like, "Hey, I'm going to disappear for the next two months because I'm going to go and try and get us help. The only people who might be able to help us." And then comes back, and eventually they show up. These are the people they've been told about. The people who can help them. And once again. Artemis walks in there and starts healing people. Doesn't matter what Darsh looks like. Mercy looks like, you know. She starts healing people. This group is beloved to these people at this point. Because everybody's like, I have a sick kid. I do not think this kid's going to make it another three days. You touched him and he's not sick anymore. Please, live here forever. I mean, that's just one of those things, right? Artemis has very powerful heals. Kind of, and... and in this situation, you know, Percy's just following her around, helping out whatever. That's something he's used to. Because she's done this before, many times, even in Serenity. You know, after battles or after whatever the case were. You can imagine they had to do this after the undead all died. The Templars are trained to fight and work with the priests. And the Templars of certain religions are trained to work with them. So, I'm a Templar of healing, right? I follow this god for a reason. Not just because... I'm told to. This is a God I follow in a different way than a cleric. I've dedicated my life to the same one. And so healing and helping and the hand in hand and walk out of a room because you're covered in blood because you had to help hold the guy while she did the healing and the surgery and pull a bone out or whatever the case is. That's just another day in the life of him. Whereas a cleric of nature or Templar of nature might not really be prepared for that. Right? So that training goes hand in hand. And that's one good thing about Artemis's temple. Because the young lady who did uh, created Artemis and had the temple, that was something she wanted. She wanted different groups to come in so the Templars of them could learn and train to fight side by side. So when the undead came recently, they were legit prepared for that type of thing. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was an incredible piece of forethought because that original attack and how it set up wasn't decided upon at the time that she she wanted to do that. So it worked out really well for her. During this time, Aaron's also talking to Mercy and Darsh specifically um, about what he knows. They've, a couple times now, when there have been the drow attacking a caravan or a wherever, they normally don't, Aaron and his group only go out in, usually in very small groups. And usually they don't go out unless he's there. Because worst case scenario, he can look like a human, come out of the trees like, no, no, it's, it's okay, it's just me. Sorry, you thought you saw something else, it's not. Um, but there's been a couple times these battles have happened and, you know, they just snuck up and took some. And I mean people. They're like, here's two people that making hoots and hollers and shooting arrows that are supposed to be drow. Got to mention at the very beginning, their thought was maybe it is drow, not us. The other drow, worse, could be drow from our kingdom, but it could be drow from a whole other kingdom that has nothing to do with us, right? Merged worlds. You got to imagine there's at least one group of surface living drow somewhere on some world. So they don't know what these drow are, but if it is the people, certain, you know, because they have to assume they're still being hunted, right? 20 years sounds like a long time to us. Not a long time to elves. 20 years is a day. Maybe a week. Like that, that is not a, 
a, a wound that heals quickly when you feel betrayed and you're an elf. That stuff lasts a long time. So they have to assume they're still being sought after, even though Nihilat's been defeated. But he's talking about what they found. They captured a few of them, got a couple humans and a couple half-elves. And, you know, did what you would do in that situation. They killed them. I mean, not so much because, you know, they're the drow are evil, but because here's people doing horrible things and blaming us. And it's not safe to put them out there because the last thing they want is for these bad drow to literally know more about the good drow, right? So they, you know, they, but yeah, they, they basically have used some type of tar and put over their paint because they, again, drow's very dark skin, like onyx black. Um, you know, start fake ears on the humans and the half-elves don't have to do that as much. Wigs, that kind of stuff, which again, reasons why you don't leave a, a body. Dandy's fighting an elf in that thing. It was a half-elf. She saw pointed ears and long hair and person moved like an elf. So I, why would she not think it was a drow? Well, she paid closer attention and used some more of her skills. She might have. But in her mind, it was an opportunity to kill a drow. And that's a good example of where Dandy feels regret. Because there's things she could have picked up on had she looked past the fact that, oh, it's just a drow and I have to kill it. You can imagine Dandy spending time with this and little kids because wanting to hang out and, you know, following Dandy around and listening to her stories and cheering and such, right? Because most drow have never seen a kender. Kender don't wander around in the Underdark, right? Dandy's probably one of the very few. Kender is not a race that they're going to keep as a slave. Everything goes missing, it's just going to escape anyways. It's not so mostly have never seen a kender. They have no reason to hate or worry about a kender. They don't know anything about a kender. And so Dandy has this awesome perk. She gets much like in Serenity, where people love her like they do Mercy in them. She's seen as one of the founders of Serenity. It's that same kind of thing. So a lot of things are going on at once. Artemis is healing people. Dandy's helped train people. Fia's helping train people. Percy and Ar is helping Artemis. Mercy and Darsh help where needed. They're the ones really taking the stuff out of the, the chest of holding and handing it out and things. But then they're also talking to Aaron and finding out strategically what's been going on. There appears to be a camp northeast of where the mountain is, right? Just on the bare, bare edge of what the... Um, Stars Reach would call their land. There's a camp in a thick woods up there, and that's where this group have been hiding. Because it doesn't take Aaron and his group long to follow them. These el these humans and such, Drow are going to be able to stalk them very, very easily. Incredible hunters. And so they're able to find them very, very easy. But, you know, they're like, I'll be honest, there's probably at least 100, 150 of them there. There's a handful of hill giants, and you know, it's only humans and a few hill giants. There's a couple what looks like ogres or half ogres kicking around in there, but it's not a group of, you know, kobolds or orcs or half orcs, that kind of stuff. Um, it's mostly humans. They're the ones that are doing all this. Um, so they know where they are. And Aaron has tried to get information about them into the communities. But he's got to be careful, right? You can't make himself stand out. He can't afford that. 
He doesn't want people to recognize him, which is one reason why nobody did, even when he's been in there before. No one, because he stays, he doesn't spend the night in an inn. He, you know, if he has to, he'll go outside the city and find a place to sleep in a tree kind of thing. But he, he's not going to let any situation where people might know him. And he doesn't always take the same physical appearance either. He can change whatever he likes. But Aaron the Hunter, that look is the more common one that he uses. So, learning this, so there's a camp of them up there, and hearing some of the information from Aaron is helping them put a few pieces of the puzzle back together. For what Aaron could know, what he can tell is whoever they are, they definitely have someone who's regularly going back and forth to Star's Reach. Co people, they're probably some type of courier or messenger, but they're definitely communicating with someone in Star's Reach. So, Upon hearing the story, Mercy first thought was someone in Star Reach is doing this. So they get to thinking about it, right? They start talking. Why? Well, it could be that people just want somebody wants everybody to rise up and go kill the Dark Elves. And that in itself is a legitimate reason. That could be all it is. You know, some people just may hate Drow Elves, right? We talked about the people that were the uh, merchant lords, right? Let me get back here so I can tell you. Uh, let me see here. Let me give you the name. All right. So there was a human, a half-elf, a dwarf, and another human. Those were the four um, merchant barons who run the place. Half-elf, dwarf, these are people that wouldn't be that happy with drow probably, right? Maybe even the humans don't want, don't want drow in the area. That could be an issue. What if, also though, there was something more? There's been a lot of hints and things thrown out because I'm a rebel like that. That if we can't get this caravan, the big one that's coming, if it gets attacked or lost, Star's Reach may lose this other big kingdom's business, which means other ones might as well. So someone would be looking to destroy Star's Reach as a neutral party. If that makes sense. It's a neutral place where nobody fights or wars because if they do, none of the other kingdoms will help you. You can't get any of their goods. Well, we've talked. I'm talking to them. We've talked together and they're, they're discussing things. And one of the things that I've mentioned earlier on is that the kingdom, the big one, the one that's sending the caravan, has frequently warred with one of the smaller ones that's to the west. So is there a potential that there could be something there? Because it definitely would benefit the smaller, weaker west if that east kingdom that they hate is no longer trading and the neutral thing falls apart, which is where they get a lot of their supplies. So that's a potential. So maybe it's that kingdom. Same time, is there someone with a personal grudge for a completely different reason somewhere in the city? They don't know, but what they do know is that time is running out. That caravan is going to be coming through here in about five days. So we're given ten days at the beginning, and they traveled a few, and then they were unconscious for almost one. They got about five days left because they spent a day or, that's after they've spent a day or so with the drought. So they have to make a determination of okay, well, what do we do? Do we go back to the city and 
try to get the message to the merchant lords and hope that they can stop it? Do we go to the caravan, try to warn them of the potential threat? Do we go to this camp? Do we go there and try to take out the huge group of people and hill giants that might do the attack? Those jump out as the three most current or front ways options that they have. These are the most realistic views that they would do. Okay, we're going to do these three things sound like the best ideas. They'd like to do all three. So they have a moment where they're like, should we split the party? Now, any dungeon master loves when the PCs think about splitting the party. But they decide not to do that. Because it would be stupid. There's no way some of them are going to go take out that camp, so that's not going to help. Some of them might be able to warn the caravan, but who's going to believe them? And if they go to the city and they end up getting snagged by whoever the guilty party is, some of them may not be able to get free or may not even get the message through. So their strengths are together. They're going to have to make a decision one way or another. What do we do? Aaron, whichever route they decide to go, the elves are willing to help. Especially the fact that they were just given some new weapons. Maybe even some armor. Like, they're willing to help because maybe that will show the kingdom that they're actually helpful. If the drow come in and do that, maybe this would be an opportunity for them. You know, Darsh and them come back and like, yes, we've saved your people, but it was the drow who did all the heavy lifting. If it wasn't for them, you'd have lost everything. And Aaron's like, you know, it benefits us to help. Plus, you know, not a big fan of people making it look like we're doing horrible things that we're not. Lord knows my people do enough horrible things by themselves. I don't need people helping. So they, they, they decide, well, if we go and take on the, the, the whole big group, the whole big camp, there's just going to be too much loss of life. And our heroes don't want to take these slightly weak drow into a battle of large scale. And as a small group, they're not taking out several hundred people. So they decide that's not the route they're going to go. What we got here, um, that's what I was thinking, hired by another lord. Mm, very possible. So if they're hired by another lord, were they hired directly by another lord? Interesting. And that's where they decide on what they're going to do. They have decided they're going to go to Star's Reach with the Drow's help. Because they have very much familiarized themselves with this area. They could get them there in two days. Which is less time than it took them to get here. They'd be cutting across nature, and they could do it in a way they won't get caught. Because Aaron has to do this. Aaron has to go that way often to get some supplies. He's very careful to try to not get supplies in the same town or village or city within a three-month period. He wants people to forget he was there. You know, there's little villages and towns everywhere. Although the drow thing's been making that harder. But they can get there. Get there in two days. That would leave them with three days left. If they spend a single day in the city, they could probably get to the caravan on the edge of what would be Star's Reach property, you could say, or, or the land that's claimed by the city and the villages around it. Give them a very short time. What you're going to do. So they decide they're going to take that, that step. They're going to go to the city and see if they can figure out what's going on. 
Aaron has some information. He's like, he's like, yeah, they person always sneaks through here and they go to that, you know, they sneak towards that bar or that inn, you know. They always go in there and then they don't come out until late that night and then they leave again. I've followed them, I've watched, you know, because Aaron could do that. Aaron could be like, hey, I'm just a regular human coming into town. Now I'm the old lady sweeping in the corner. Now I'm the young kid playing in the, you know, I mean, he can change shape as often he wants so the person he's following can't tell it's the same person, right? What a handy amulet that would be. So they decide to do that. And their horses, which are all here, they just, they're, they're, they're going to go on foot. They're not taking the horses because they're going to be going through areas which are not horse-friendly. There's not enough horses for everybody. Aaron's going with them. Aaron does not have a horse. I don't think he had a horse. I don't believe he had a horse. Um, they decide to take the whole group because they don't know who they're going to need. Everybody, of course, Armist's coming, Percy's coming. Fia's coming. Why wouldn't you? So the whole party's going to go. And they gather up their stuff and they leave the supplies they can. And, you know, Aaron gives a little, you know, talks to some of his people. It's like, we're going to go do what we can. We're going to try to make this right. We're going to try to try to set this up where we can hopefully get some supplies and things and yada yada. Because they have raided farms, but they've only raided the ones that were abandoned at this point. You know, they sneak up to a, a farm and there's like, Okay, nobody here. No one's been here in a while. They're growing this. I don't know what this is. It's corn. I don't know what this is, but I'm assuming it might be edible. They're growing it. You know? You could imagine that too, right? Imagine that being on the surface and looking at all these crops being grown and not knowing what any of them taste like. Would I know how to cook corn? You know, do I eat the outer shuck? You know, I mean, it's like, it's it's a whole new experience for drought. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 in my head, I could see a lot of really humorous situations where someone's trying to, you know, hold corn over a fire on a stick and maybe it pops. I know it's not really going to do that, but imagine like popcorn starts popping off and people are drawing weapons and such because popcorn's flying everywhere because it falls in the fire. That would not happen that way. That's not realistic, but by God, it's a funny image in my head. Drow, they're shooting arrows and swinging with swords because they think they're being attacked. That's really popcorn. It's funny to me. So, <laughs> sorry. I amuse myself with stupid things on that. All right. So, Aaron switches to Aaron the Hunter mode. Takes that position, that, that shape. And to him, he still has all of the same abilities. He can hear as well. He's still got the infravision. He just physically looks like a human. So well as much so that even when infravision is working, which for the record, your pupils get much, much larger when you're in when you're using infravision or night vision. Because you have to be able to take in more light to see things. This is a real science fact. You will literally get much, much wider in the dark because you're looking to bring in as much light. That's why if you have drow, you pop a torch out real quick. That's why it's so blinding. There are people, they're just, it's all light. So, but him, his eyes don't look like that. It always looks human even though the abilities are kicking in. Hides him completely. You got a kick out of that mental image also, so you're not... <laughs> well, I'm glad. I just... I just... Drow are so serious, right? It's just... Somebody's trying to cook popcorn. Corn pops everywhere. They're in the dark. There's no torches on. Arrows are flying everywhere. People are sword fighting. It's just popcorn. 
in back of my mind, Dandy threw it in the fire, and you know, just to be a turd. <laughs> but yeah, so they start making their way towards Star's Reach. They're concerned because they're who can they trust in Star's Reach? Not a lot of people. They're going to get in. They're going to. They're going to sneak into Star's Reach. Aaron knows a lot about them. He knows a lot about their abilities. Knows about Artem uh, Mercy's ring that teleports her Morningstar. Knew a lot about them. He did not know about the chest of holding because they just don't whip that out all the time. They're kind of sneaky and keep that hidden. Most people in Serenity don't know they have a chest of holding. So when he when they whipped that out and started pulling supplies and stuff out, he was blown away. And when they suggest, hey, some of you guys are going to have to climb in this box so we can shrink it and I can put it in my pocket. He's like, are what? You could do that? And they're like, yeah, that's half of how we made it to you in the Underdark. is Because half the time we were hiding inside of this thing. Which was true. There was a whole... I remember telling you guys there was a whole thing about how Willow had to get through a, a dark dwarf kingdom all on her own. And she, she, I think she was like the only one with good improvision or something at the time. And so she was trying to get through it alone while everybody was in the chest of holding. It's a little Willow adventure in the middle of all that. Because Willow was the character that was getting the least attention. Um, the young lady who played Willow liked Shadowheart, I think, a bit more and really focused on Shadowheart. So we had a lot more backstory and things and so on. Uh, but I wanted to give her a chance to sign so she could get in. And sure enough, she really liked her and started putting some real focus into her, which was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so you know, there, there, the fact you can hide in there, yes, Darsh is going to have to hide in there. Darsh is not sneaking into anything. Darsh is the only mentor he saw in the whole area. He's not sneaking in anywhere. So basically, Dandy is going to sneak them back into the city. Aaron does not feel a lot of confidence of getting into the chest. He doesn't quite know how it works, and the thought of being shrunk down into an interdimensional space, hoping that Dandy will eventually pull him out, because, you know, you got to imagine what Dandy does kill him. Obviously, your friends are in there, too, but, you know, you got to worry about these things. But uh, when it's time to get in, Dandy remembers, like, uh, yeah, trust is important in this relationship, isn't it? And with a sigh, he goes, yes, it is. He climbs inside the chest of holding. Because <laughs> she's like, hey, hey, give me an excuse. Give me an excuse to hate you again, okay? Right now, you're cool. Give me an excuse to hate you, and I will kill you. You are still a drow. I'm better, still not a huge fan, you know? It's kind of the looking, hmm? She's like, I'm getting in the chest. So it takes him two days to get back. And they get there late in the evening. Now, he described the, the approximate location of the place. But surprisingly, he doesn't know its name. Because Aaron cannot read common. There's no reason in the world he would need to. He did learn the basics of speaking some of it, and he's better now. He already knew, he already knew how to speak common back in the day, because he spoke fine to Mercy and then there. You can speak it. He doesn't know how to read it. Surprisingly, yes. You can speak a lot of languages you can't read and write. I mean, Lord, humans did it for how many 
many years before writing was invented. So he could only give directions to where the inn is, not so much of what it may be called. So you get the instructions. Danny's like, you go here, you go up the road, you go this far, you turn left, and so on and so forth. And Danny's like, okay, I got it. And they, they sneak in there, and Danny ends up sneaking into the city after dark, which for Danny's not hard at all. It's really not that well defended. The city's more based on number of defenders than it is physical defense, which is never a good idea. Um, but, you know, there's that. So, Danny manages to make it inside. And he gets there. And she's immediately disheartened. In the back of her mind is that little voice again saying, all right, we've not been paying attention and we got our friends into a potentially bad situation. We have to pay more attention now. That's right, Dandy. No time to be a Kender. I need to use my Kender abilities. (laughs) Conversation Dandy has with himself. So, She's disheartened because when she sees the inn, it's the same inn that their friend Willem stays at. One that tried to get them to they got the job from. He runs his business out of that one, he said. And immediately, in the back of her mind, she's like, That's too coincidental. That's a problem. I'm not liking that. So she makes her way down the street a little bit past the inn and finds a stable. Now, it's mostly, the town's mostly quiet at this point. It's like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Some of the bars and inns are still open a little bit, of course, but most of the businesses are shut down. The stable's mostly closed. It's full of horses for the night. A lot of travelers come through here, remember. She manages to find an empty stall kind of in the back and she kicks some horse poop out of the way, sets the chest down and opens it up. Everybody comes out. They're all huddled in this little stall. There's enough room for all of them, but not by a lot. And Dandy gives the information, okay, this is the this is the inn. This is the one, it's the bar slash inn, and it's the same one that Willem sent us to. So they're like, okay, well, how could this be worst case scenario? That's, that's you always have to assume worst case scenario. If he's involved, how and why? Look back on his story. He used to be a city guard till he got into the bodyguard business. And ever since all this happened, it's harder to find people to work with, but man, he makes a lot of money good business. He's actually quite popular for the job because he's one of the few people who survived several of these drow encounters. That's why he's in demand. Didn't know if anybody remembered any of those things, so I wanted to remind you. Hired Darshanim again. Looks good for them. And then when Darshanim took out a hill giant, well, maybe he wasn't expecting that, but uh, it was also him that told the lords that they were in town and all the help they'd been. When they came, when they sent a message for him, 
they came and talked to the to the the merchant lords they said yes we heard from him all the great work you did and you'd be perfect to send on this mission so that makes them concerned so how would they find out whether or not that's true or not well they're gonna have to get in and find out see if they can find a clue but they're gonna have to pull a scooby-doo they're going to have to split up gang because again Darsh is not sneaking in there. Neither is Artemis. As much of a golden ticket she is, she's also a big old neon flashing sign. You're, that's a cleric of healing who's an elf. She's, she's going to stand out. So, they decide to send in the two people they think are most useful in this situation. The first one's going to be Aaron. Because Aaron can look like whatever he wants. No one's going to recognize him. Right? And he's seen some of the messengers. Maybe he'll see something that'll trigger a knowledge. They think they should send in one more person. Obviously, it can't be Darsh. It can't be Artemis. It was Dandy and Mercy. Eh, Dandy's a kender. That could draw too many prying eyes as well. So this is with Mercy. Mercy has regular civilian clothes, because sometimes they have to pretend to be different people in the chest of holding. She could dress up into civvies, if you will. But she, relatively attractive, going into a bar, might also get some of the wrong type of attention. She doesn't want to stand out either. So they decide to send in someone who's incredibly good at being noticed, or, uh, uh, observant and quiet, and don't stand out at all if he puts on regular clothes. Percy is chosen to go inside. He's like, excuse me? Percy, we think this is going to be a great job for you. You and Aaron go in there. Talk to each other. Two white dudes going in there to hang out. Have some drinks. You know, your traveler's coming through. See what you can find out. Maybe even say, hey, we've heard that there's some... Uh, uh, money to be made in the area, guarding caravans or killing drow. Aaron's like, you see, he just flinches a little bit when they say that. And he's in human form right now, but he's, she's like, sorry about that. But you understand, you know. He's like, I got you, I got you. Percy's looks military. He takes off that Templar gear and puts on some regular clothes, some leathers and stuff. He's going to have some change of clothes. They think ahead. They always have. They also got. They also got big old woolly coats down there. That they can put on in case they end up in an Arctic area. Who knows what Merge Worlds throws at them in areas they've never been to before? They got desert clothing. They're always prepared. So Percy and does that. Goes in, gets some change of clothing, comes out, puts it on. He still got a sword strapped on. He leaves the Templar sword. He takes one of their generic uh, <laughs> Oromon swords. Slides that in. Not the, he does that per Mercy's suggestion. And he's like, okay, why that? She goes, that's where you're from. If anyone asks, you two used to be an Oromon. Things got a little dicey in the Civil War down there. You're an ex-warrior, you know, so you made your way north. If anybody knows anything about Oromon and they see that sword, they might think you're one of the elites that somehow left or escaped. That, that could be good. Especially since, you know, they're not known to be the nicest of people. So, you know, if you're if there is a turd in there, you might be the business they're looking for. He's like, I can play that. 
I can, he goes, okay, I can do that. Because you would imagine with Ormond being their biggest enemy for the longest time, Percy knows a lot about it, right? He's got prompts and all that kind of stuff. He's heard the stories. He learns the history. You got to know your enemy. So he gets all dressed out in regular stuff. Um, he was a little upset when he asked if he could wear an eye patch. They said, why do you need an eye patch? He goes, I just feel my character would be better with an eye patch. And they're like, Percy, you need to calm down about the eye patch. Okay. Listen, eye patch, not so much. If it falls off or somebody pulls it off and you have a working eye, you've created a problem for yourself. And he's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yes. Okay. No eye patch then. Maybe another time. They're like, maybe another time with the eye patch, but not today. It's like, okay. So Percy and Aaron make their way towards the inn. Now, they probably don't have a whole lot of time before it's going to close. Like I said, it's around midnight, one o'clock. We'll say it's a weekend. It's open a little later. I'm kidding about that part. But you know what I mean? It's probably open until two or three in the morning. Most bars are. As long as people are paying, why don't you stay up, right? So they go in, you know, people... They walk in the door, people look at them for a second, like, okay, just regular dudes, nobody notices. And they get in there, and they're like, this bar has a touch of seedy. It kind of has that seedy feel about it, right? It's got the people there that are like, uh, you know, no one necessarily looks evil. Evil. But, you know, they, they, they don't look like the nicest of people. No. Rough crowd, if you will. So they go in and find a table. And servant comes, a server comes over and said, "Yeah, we'd like some food and whatever you got to drink. We're hungry, been on the road all day." She's like, "Okay, cool. We'll get you some food. Come back with a plate of whatever bowl of stew, it was a bread, whatever they have. Usually bars have something going on there, and they're eating and such. And they you know, try to strike up some conversations with the people around them, right?" And, uh, you know, people are like, hey, I haven't seen you around here before. Are you from here? No, we're from the, from the south. We made up this way. And immediately, you know, Percy, you know, he's not being a jerk. He's not being silly with character. Oh, uh, Glitch Vision says, so I can assume then the sailors of Merge Worlds don't use eye patches for the natural benefits of aiding with adjustments between the darkness of the ship interior and the light of the sun? It's the only reason there would be a problem. Um, potentially, I would say yes. They're nowhere near an ocean right now, though. So it wouldn't make sense here, but yes, 100%. Sure, they could if they want to in that situation. But here, you know, in the middle of the, the forest land where there's no nothing bigger than a lake with a rowboat in it, not so much. But yes, that is a good use of it. Hey, what's up, Bragg? Welcome back, sir. So they're in there, and people are like, hi, oh, you're from south? Yeah, uh, kingdom of Oromon down there. I've heard of Oromon. Oh, yeah, it's a... Nice kingdom, things with civil war going on for a long. Things are getting a little bit too hot there, so uh, we heard that there was some uh, a call for mercenaries or for work up here for guarding caravans or dealing with some elves or something. I might come up here and see if there's uh, some money to be made. While this is talking, a gentleman comes over and you know, kind of sits down at the table. It's not anyone Percy recognizes, right? Which is good, because Percy's concerned a little bit about that, because he did meet Willem and travel with him for a few days, but he spent most of his time with uh, Artemis, and he's hoping, you know, he was kind of in the background, people wouldn't notice him as much, especially since he's so used to wearing the shiny Templar stuff that he was wearing. Because he was wearing Templar gear, he just wasn't wearing Serenity Templar gear. 
there's a difference. So, guy sits down and he goes, looking for work. Like, yeah, we just got into town looking for a place to stay. Like, this is the first place we came across. And food's good, so it was a good choice. But, uh, yeah, it's looking for work. We've got a few coins left, but, you know, it was a long travel to get up here. The guy's like, excellent, excellent. So, yeah, yeah, there's some business to be had around here. There's uh, caravans that are always used going back and forth. It's a trade city. You know, always looking for uh, guards of, and things of that nature. And uh, it's a couple of gentlemen that actually work out of here that do that. If you're interested, tomorrow we can get you with someone who might be interested. Like, okay, that sounds like good business. Yeah, sure, we can use a job anyways. So you pay well? Oh, yeah, yeah, it pays real well. It's uh, it's hard to find by people. Okay, well, sure, that's good. Like, the other thing is, yeah, there's a, it's a big uh, reward as well for people who want to go out and hunt some drow. Some drow problem to the northeast. Percy's like, really? Well, I don't know anything about drow. I've never fought one of those, but, you know, I mean, how good's the money? You know, like, what is it, like five of them, six of them or something? They get in a group together? <laughs> And they're like, no, no, community of them, a few hundred. He's like, I'm out of that. I don't know anything about drow, but I know enough about drow. I want to mess with 200 drow. The guy kind of laughs. He goes, that's probably the smartest thing you've ever said, right? <laughs> yeah, no, most people don't want to. The few people that have gone up there to try to do stuff, none of them have ever come back. So no one's been lucky so far. You're better off guarding the caravans. And they're like, excellent, excellent. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. Are there any rooms here? I said, yeah, I'll check. I'm sure we got some rooms open. I'll see if we can get you something. And uh, tomorrow we'll have you speak to uh, Willem. He runs the, uh, runs the business here. He owns the bar, and he also runs the, his mercenary protection business out of here as well. We'll get you with somebody. He's not here today, but he'll be back he'll be back in the morning. They're like, okay, excellent, cool. Yeah, we'll take a room. Cool. We got some coins. And so the guy's like, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the coins. It's on us. Consider it a, a you showing of goodwill from a potential new employer. And uh Percy's like, all right, okay, yeah. That sounds good. No, Percy's doing a good job. Aaron's been mostly quiet, trying to talk some as well, but Aaron has a very noble speech about him. So that was one of the things that Mercy and them kind of, because he did, and Dandy didn't really target that much because the drow conversation took over everything. But he's trying to, you know, answer questions and stuff too, but clearly Percy's the chatter, chatterer of the two. And so they're kind of having that chat, and they're like, excellent, excellent. He's like, well, here, enjoy your meal then. Enjoy your meal, and I'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, we'll see about getting your room. Like, excellent. So they're leaving Percy and Aaron looking at each other like, okay. We've made contact with the Willem and crew, so on and so forth, but uh, see what else we got, you know. I guess instead of going back, we're going to stay here. Because they hadn't planned on spending the night, but with this opportunity, they, they think it might be the best thing to do. Hopefully their friends don't freak out too much. So, sure enough, you know, the guy comes back a few minutes later. Introduced himself as Thomas. He's like, I am Thomas. I work with, I work for Mr. Will. Uh, yeah, we've got you. Girl, I hope you guys don't mind sharing a room. We got a room with two beds in it. It's the only one that's left open. They're like, no, that's fine. We're sleeping on the opposite side of the fire for months now. It's no big deal. He snores like a beast, though. Points at Aaron. Aaron's like, hey. He's like, I'm, hey, man. I tell you, you never leave me. He snores like a beast. Like, All right. So they get up there and they, they're like, well, here, I'll show you to your rooms. So they get up there and he goes, yeah, here's your room here. Open the door. There's a couple of beds in there. Go on in and. Uh, We'll have you speak with Mr. Willem in the morning. Like, yeah, cool. So Percy walks in and Aaron walks in and Aaron immediately drops and rolls. Percy, unfortunately, 
did not pick up on it. And the club strikes him square on the back of the head, and he falls to the ground. Ayer runs up immediately with his sword drawn. Light comes on. You can see there's two really big dudes, like just like you'd expect, right? Two really big, dumb-looking dudes, like bulk guys, each with a small bat, almost like Billy Club kind of thing. Percy fell to the ground unconscious. Thomas walks in and goes, Mr. Willems, Mr. Willems really interested where the rest of his friends are. Maybe you can answer some questions for us. And Aaron looks at them like, damn it. <laughs> this is not the situation I wanted to be in. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight. I know it's a little bit earlier, but I have some stuff coming up here that I don't want to split in the middle again. So, And we're a little over two hours. So, um, like I said, I've been trying to make it a little bit closer to two hours where I used to run two and a half to three, uh, just because on the audio podcast side of things, it's uh, from my stuff, they were being a little bit long for some people. So having a little bit smaller, uh, making a bit more bite-sized where people can catch up on them uh, when they miss them, uh, I've been, I'm definitely trying to do that for folks as well. So I'm aiming for more around the two hour, two hour, 15 minute mark at this point. You keep around two hours if I can, um, just to you know help make it work better for everybody. But two weeks from now, we'll be back with episode 69, giggity, and um, I will uh, maybe have some cool special stuff going on in that one. Feel like I should for some reason. Can't for the life of me think of why that would be an important episode, but yeah, I'm just that kind of guy. Um, but yes, we'll be back. That'll be in two weeks. We'll be back for that. Um, next week we will be our episode of Behind the Dice. Okay. Um, and this time we're going to be talking about monsters. Uh, choosing, you know, how how do you choose your monsters for your party? What's a great way to put that together, right? As well as creating your own monsters. Because there are some challenges as a DM or, uh, of creating monsters and not making them too powerful. And at the same time, not making them too much of a slouch. So uh, we're going to be doing a bunch of that. Back to No Man's Sky videos. <laughs> well, I apologize I had to cut out early, Michael. <laughs> But yes, we are. Uh, we'll be back again in two weeks for for Merge Worlds. Now tomorrow night, I am over on Discord, on Twitch, nine thirty p.m. Eastern. Uh, tomorrow is going to be doing just a chill hangout story, carving a jack o' lantern stream. So just us hanging out, maybe telling some stories and so on and so forth, having some laughs, if you will. Um, but that's tomorrow night, and then Saturday is our special. Uh, Devil's Night, the day before Halloween, uh, duo Seven Days to Die on Twitch with Colonel Gaming and myself. Uh, this one is going to be dedicated to Evil Dead, so we'll only be using chainsaws and pump shotguns for that episode. And then, of course, Sunday, uh, I normally stream here on YouTube. This Sunday, I'm going to be over on Twitch. I'm doing like a 10 or 12 hour stream for Halloween, um, doing a bunch of different stuff. Um, but then Monday, I'm going to be doing the stream on YouTube. So I'm switching Sunday and Monday around. And Sunday on Twitch, Monday on. A lot of good stuff coming up here in the future. Hopefully you'll hang out. Um, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, hey, thank you. I appreciate that. 
you wouldn't mind giving if you have iTunes or Spotify it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving the podcast a follow if you'd like to give it a rating lots of stars are great five stars or maybe even a little review it would be awesome if you'd give it a like and send it to some people trying to get in front of as many eyes as possible Uh, and if you're here on YouTube and you enjoyed it please remember to click the like button and if you're new here please be sure to subscribe to the channel so you can hang out and hear all of our Merge Worlds adventures as they come out Um, I have some things coming up in Merged Worlds relatively soon that I'm very excited about that's all I'm going to say about it. Thank you guys for coming and hanging with me today. As always, I had a lot of fun, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate uh, you letting me tell this story. You know, Merge Worlds and the world that is all this creation stuff I put together wouldn't exist if you guys didn't listen. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, but I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful day. Hope you have an amazing Halloween if you celebrate it. If you don't, in your country, celebrate it anyways. Why not? Nobody says you can't put a mask on and eat candy any day of the week, October 31st. You guys have yourselves a wonderful week, and hopefully I will see you again very, very soon. Talk to you later.